Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. It is a privilege and a joy to come and preach here at Providence Presbyterian Church. Uh, at the same time, every time I imagine a pastor gets up to preach God's Word, not only is it a joy, but it's also scary and intimidating to, to stand up in front of people and try to unpack and explain God's Word, and it does move us uh, to dependence on the Holy Spirit. And so I will uh, pray for us, and then I will give just a few introductory thoughts here for our text this morning, which is Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, and then I'll read that text. So let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness to your people. We thank you for the ways that you have cared for your people throughout history, that you have been present with us, and that in your son, Jesus, you came to, to be with us, to suffer alongside us, and in doing so, to give us hope, hope in your life and death and resurrection. And we pray that that would be the thing that grounds us in our lives as individuals and in our lives together as your people in our various churches. So we thank you for the hope and the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen from the dead, and reigning over all of creation. And we pray that we would find comfort and peace in your son, Jesus. We thank you for this chance that we have to worship together as your people here at Providence, to sing, to confess our sin, to hear and be reminded of our forgiveness and now to come and hear your word, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear it, that you would soften our hearts, that you would use this word from Ephesians 1 this morning to comfort us in the places that we need comforted, and to challenge us in the places that we need challenged, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I saw you're going through Hebrews, which really focuses in on all that Jesus has done for us, that he is greater than any one or any event throughout history. And this morning, as a text, we're jumping out of Hebrews. I'm going to be preaching from Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. And the verses that come before this, Paul speaks about in glorious and wonderful and amazing terms how God has called us and elected us and adopted us and brought us into fellowship with the triune God through Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the greatest as you read about throughout Hebrews, and that his greatness comes, that he is the Son of God, and that he lives out God as God and man with his people on earth, and that this greatest accomplishment that Jesus does in his life, death, and resurrection moves Paul to pray for the church in Ephesus. And he's overwhelmed as he thinks about that, writing this letter, and it moves him to pray. And so this morning, we are going to read, uh, when he prays, what does he pray about? What moves him to pray? And then we'll talk through that. So let me read here Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his, this in his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, as Vince said, my name is Keith Winder. I'm one of the pastors at Wheatland Presbyterian Church on the western edge of Lancaster City. And growing up with the last name Winder, in my opinion, in some ways was not ideal. Because when you're a winder, and Vince might know this as a wood, especially in a winder of a really small elementary school class of only 30 kids, it seems like you're the last to do everything at school. As a child in elementary school, I remember experiencing a clash of my desire for my name to be first and up front with the reality that having a last name that starts with a W in a small class meant that you were always last in everything that you did. I was the last at the end of every line that was formed in first and second and third and fourth and fifth grade. I was the last to get my gym uniform when they were passed out at school, which meant I was left wearing an extra large, which as you can imagine for someone of my stature was not ideal at school. I was the last to get my vision tested in the nurse's office, which there was a small perk with that because I could stand closer and memorize the 2020 letters before I had to stand behind the line with my deteriorating eyesight. At one point, I remember thinking that it might be advantageous to switch my middle and last name. My middle name is Allen, so I could be known as Keith Winder Allen, and now I'd be up there at the front of every line and people would remember me. Because I had this distorted idea that being first would mean recognition, or maybe it would mean power, because by the time the teacher gets to Winder, no one's even paying attention anymore. Then in sixth grade, on the first day of school that year, two things happened, and one was glorious and one not so much. As we gathered to begin the year, Miss Porteous was our homeroom teacher, and she was explaining the class rules. And she said that one of the rules was that rather than doing everything in alphabetical order from A to Z, when we lined up, when we chose projects, etc., we would work our way backward through the alphabet in sixth grade. And this was a dream come true for me. I immediately knew that I would love this teacher. My name would be first, finally, My name would be above every name in sixth grade. And after six years of being at the back of the line, six years of being an afterthought, I would be seated at the head of the class. I would be at the right hand of my teacher. I would be first. Everyone would remember me. Miss Porteous made this glorious announcement, and I was tempted to shout a solid amen in sixth grade. But instead, I sat quietly, knowing this would be the greatest year of my entire life. But then a second thing happened that first day. Miss Porteous said, to start off, we're going to go around the class and we're going to have everyone share about their summers. Tell us some of the things that you did this summer. And we'll start with whoever's last name comes, whose last name comes last in the alphabet. 
which was going to be me. So I started to stand up, and just as I started to stand up and begin to share, Ms. Portia said, it's a joy to welcome a new student to our class, Jeff Yule. <laughs> Jeff, why don't you stand up and tell us about your summer? The last, the first was not going to be last. The last was not going to be first. Friends, our hearts are drawn to make a name for ourselves. Promoting our personal brand is big business these days. Whether it's on social media or at our workplaces, and this is nothing new. It's been a problem since the beginning of time when Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. By Genesis 4, we see in the scriptures, Lamech is using his sort of social network to promote his brand of violence and power. Everyone will remember my name, Lamech declares. And we want this because oftentimes with that name and recognition comes influence, comes power, comes control. But in our passage this morning, Paul promotes one name, and it's the name of Jesus. Because the name of Jesus, Paul says, is always at the front of the line. The name of Jesus must always be recognized first. The name of Jesus is above every name in this age and in the age to come, he says. It is Jesus who has been given all rule, authority, power, and dominion. The Father has put all things under Jesus' feet and given him as head over all things. And then, this amazing, powerful King Jesus is given to the church, Paul writes. In the incarnation, Jesus comes to be with his people. And in our adoption, as he described earlier in Ephesians, we are welcomed into the family of God. Now we are united to Christ, brothers and sisters of the glorious one, the high king of heaven, the son of God, Jesus Christ. This is the big idea of Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus, that they would come to know this hope, this glorious inheritance, this immeasurable greatness of the power of God. And because of this great hope, it is a waste of time, and actually, maybe in some ways, likely a sinful waste of time to seek to make a name for ourselves, to spend our lives seeking more and more power and recognition. To long to always be at the front of the line or to sit at the right or the left of the powerful. To long to be known as great is grasping at something that's not ours for the taking. Because this power, this name, is Jesus's alone. So as we come to know this glorious inheritance, this immeasurable power of God, we are much less concerned about our own name. Now we are driven to proclaim the glorious name of Jesus. And when this becomes the desire of our hearts, it moves us to live as the Christians in Ephesus were living, to live with faith in Jesus and love toward all the saints. This becomes the desire of our hearts. And as we see with Paul, this then becomes the central focus of our prayers when you and I pray for the church. In verse 15 and 16, at the beginning here, we see the reason for Paul's prayer. And verse 15 specifically says, For this reason I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. John Stott provides some helpful insight on what reason it is that drives Paul to pray for the Ephesians. Stott writes this, he says, By the words, for this reason... Paul ties his prayer more dramatically to what God has sovereignly done in them, doubtless as exemplified in their faith and their love. 
because it's God who has worked in them. Paul has not stopped thanking God because it is God alone who sovereignly and graciously continues to effect such transformation. He is the one who must be petitioned to continue this good work. Because God is sovereign, Paul offers thanksgiving for God's intervening sovereign grace in the lives of the readers. Now, I must admit that when I first read this passage, I do not immediately see what John Stott is saying. I thought that Paul was giving thanks because of how faithful and how loving the Ephesian church had been. And that's sort of true. But really, Paul is pointing back to the first 14 verses of chapter 1 in Ephesians, and he's thanking God for this redemptive work in the lives of the Ephesians that is evidenced by their faith and their love for each other. Paul looks back on the word that God has done in adopting his children, and he says how this act of adoption has transformed their lives. The people of God are now taking on the heart of their father. They are living a life of love and faith. John Calvin argues that we shouldn't read faith and love as two different areas of success for the Ephesian church. Rather, this is a, a metaphor, some image for the entirety of Christian character. Christian character is faith and love. Throughout the scriptures, we see faith and love as shorthand for what it looks like to be like Christ and live as children of Yahweh. So Paul recognizes this work of God's Spirit, and it leads him to give thanks to God. The church that Paul had seen come to life in Acts 19 has continued to grow in love and in faithfulness, but rather merely breathing a sigh of relief, Paul prays and says, that's great. I give, I give thanks for what God has done in you and how you, by the Spirit, have lived faithfully, but keep going. Keep pushing. Paul prays for more. Now he asks God for his continued work in their hearts and lives. He sees that God is doing a good work in them, and now Paul prays that that work will continue until it's brought to completion. It's interesting that God's sovereign work of bringing salvation and growing faith to his, in his people doesn't lead Paul to passively sit back and watch. God's sovereign, gracious purposes leads Paul to pray for God's people. It's because God has chosen us in Christ, because he has predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters, because he has lavished on us the riches of his grace. It's because all of this that Paul prays as he does. This isn't a reason for him or for us to throw up our hands and say, well, what's the point? God is doing what God is doing. God is doing what he wants to do. Knowing that God is sovereign, powerful, and gracious leads us to pray for one another, to pray that God would use his sovereign, gracious power for the good of his people. So we pray for each other. And following Paul's prayer, what should be the content of these prayers? Verses 17 to 21, we see this content of Paul's prayer. With this reason and motivation behind him or in front of the church in Ephesus, Paul makes a plea to the Father of glory. Paul says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give the Ephesians and you and me the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. His prayer goes back to the beautiful reality of verse 3, if you have your Bibles open or if you're familiar 
with this letter to Ephesus. It goes back to this beautiful reality that all the blessings that we have received are in Christ Jesus. And Paul longs for and prays for the Spirit to more and more help God's people know these truths. Right away, Paul emphasizes how we are desperately in need of the Holy Spirit. Nothing happens in our hearts and minds. Nothing is changed in us without the Spirit. All the transformation that happens in you, this movement from death to life, and any beholding of God's glory is because of the Spirit's work in your lives, Paul says. So he prays that the Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts, that the seed of our affections would be enlightened, that our desires would be changed by the wisdom of the Spirit and the knowledge of God. And that we would come to know three particular things Paul prays in this passage. That we would come to know the hope of God's call, the glory of God's inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. First, this idea of the hope of God's call. Our faith is a response to God's call on our lives. At Wheatland and here, as, as I see and participate with you this morning, we start our worship with a call to worship. Because it is pointing out this relationship that it is God who calls us and draws us to himself. And everything that we do is a response to God's calling. It is he who invites us into relationship with him. Those he predestined, those he called, those he justified. And God didn't call us to some endless wandering in life. He gave us, Paul says, a sure hope. I remember going on a hike with some friends a number of years ago, and the guy who called us and met us in the parking lot early into the hike, the others on a, the hike realized that we had no destination. A very few of us realized that he had no idea where we were going on this hike. He just gathered us together, and we just meandered around in the middle of the woods. It was about two hours later, very quickly, a few of us lost hope and actually lost interest in the hike because we never made it to a waterfall or a lovely view. It was just some endless wandering with no destination at the end. And although sometimes in our lives we feel as though we're in the midst of endless wandering, Paul says it's not so with God and his calling. When God calls us, there is no randomness. There is nothing without purpose. He calls us to a particular hope. And this hope, which he introduced in a few verses before here in chapter 1, and he also writes about elsewhere, is a calling into the fellowship of God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We have been called into the family of God adopted and given the greatest hope that anyone could ever have, brought into fellowship with the triune God. And this fellowship, this new family that we are now a part of, leads to new life. It transforms us. It gives us a new way to be human. We are now a new humanity. And Paul will unpack what truly being human looks like if you continue reading his letter. So Paul prays about this hope of God's call, and he also prays that the Spirit would enlighten our hearts to know the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. 
Now, there are differing opinions on whether in this passage Paul is talking about God's inheritance or ours. Commentators and theologians say that Paul is either referring to the inheritance that God possesses his people, which we often see throughout the Old Testament when God speaks of Israel as his inheritance or his possession. Or Paul is referring to the future anticipated and glorious inheritance that we have as the people of God. And the nice thing about this disagreement is that both of these ideas are true. They aren't conflicting ideas. That God does have an inheritance, it's his people, and he does provide those people with this glorious inheritance that's held for us, as Peter writes in his letter. But based on the context and these verses and the earlier parts of chapter 1, it seems that Paul in this is referring to this idea of the riches of God's inheritance that he has for us. The imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that Peter says is kept in heaven for us. As heirs with Christ, we look forward to the riches of dwelling with God in a new creation, worshiping him in glory and living in perfect fellowship with him. And as one theologian, D.A. Carson, points out, this inheritance of God that he gives us will not be a private party for each individual, but rather among the saints as we join the great multitude, which no one can number from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. In chapter 2, Paul will unpack this calling for us to live out our future inheritance, this future reconciled worship in the present. But for now, he prays that God was open our eyes to the reality of this truth. And then adding to this prayer for the hope and the glory of God's inheritance, Paul prays that the Spirit would reveal to us the immeasurable greatness of God's power, or the surpassing greatness, or some translations say the incomparable greatness of God's power. Power was a big deal in the Roman world, and even specifically in Ephesus. Ephesus was a big, powerful, and growing city. It was growing in population, it was growing in its cultural influence, and it was also a center for religious life, not a center for Jewish religious life, but a place where numerous Cults and beliefs were flourishing with different understandings of what sort of beings were making the world go round. And this is why Paul will begin to allude to the principalities and the powers in this letter and in others. But if you ask me to give the one thing that puts the immeasurable or surpassing or incomparable greatness of God on display, my first thought would often be to go to God's creation. You say, what's the thing that points you to God's power? It would be creation. Because the vastness and the detail of God's creation is overwhelming. God is powerful enough to create galaxies and to position the sun at the perfect distance from the earth, but he also cares enough to create a hummingbird that flaps its wings at 80 beats per second as it hovers at a flower taking in nectar. If you asked me to talk about God's surpassing and immeasurable power, I would have brought up that God's power was great enough to create a magnetic field around the earth to protect this planet from solar radiation and also powerful and engaged enough to miraculously grow a baby 
over 40 weeks in a mother's womb. That's the sort of immeasurable and surpassing and incomparable power and greatness that I think of. But when you look at verses 20 and 21, when Paul gives the quintessential act of God's immeasurable and surpassing power, he describes the resurrection and the enthronement of Jesus. See, God's power is immeasurable and comparable and, uh, and, and surpassing this greatness of his power. It's immeasurable. It's incomparable. But the interesting thing is the way that you and I tend to seek to understand the height, the size of something, or the depth of something, or the value of something is by measuring it, or by comparing it to something else. So the sun's temperature, we know because you can Google it, is five times hotter than the hottest lava on the earth. So we, oh, I get, kind of, how hot the sun is. Or maybe if you ever undertake a home renovation, you say you want to add 30% to the size of your bathroom, and you, that, now you have a grasp for how much bigger you bet your bathroom will be. Here Paul says that God's power is surpassing in its greatness. It is immeasurable. God's power is not five times stronger than Rome or Caesar or 12 times bigger than the United States. Paul says that God's power can't even placed, be placed on a scale. It can't be compared to anyone or anything else because in that comparison, we would be limiting God's power. It would be only five times more powerful than Rome. Tim Keller points out this is why the language of the Psalms is so helpful. Oftentimes in the Psalms, we read that power belongs to God is the language that David and other psalmists use. Psalm 62.11 says, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. So if all power belongs to God, then any sort of power that we ever observe or experience here is delegated power from God. Keller continues this line of thinking, and he says that this is how Jesus could respond to Pilate as he did before his crucifixion. Remember, Pilate is asking, and he's asked to decide the fate of Jesus. And they're having this conversation, and Pilate says to Jesus, do you know that I have power to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate's trying to get Jesus to understand how powerful he is. And how important it is for Jesus to respectfully plead his case with Pilate. And Jesus recognizes that Pilate has this power, but he also knows that power is not ultimate. Even the power of Rome is not ultimate. So Jesus answers him, You would have no power over me at all unless it had been given for you from above. You would have no power over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus is echoing the words of the psalmist and the words of Isaiah when Isaiah writes, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is God who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Or as John Calvin writes, Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father 
exercises the highest government in heaven and earth and triumphs gloriously over the enemies who he has subdued and vanquished. And now Paul prays that we would come to know this power of God. That the church in Ephesus and that you and I, that we would be able to look at Pilate in the eye and say, God alone has all surpassing greatness of power. God alone has immeasurable power. And here's the beauty of how God uses his power. Unlike how so many have used their delegated power throughout history, the beauty of how God uses his power is that he uses his power to act on his steadfast love. Remember Psalm 62:11 says power belongs to God and to you O Lord belongs steadfast love. God is not some out of control power-wielding abuser who will use his power and his authority to oppress and bring injustice. God, in his steadfast love, his compassion, his grace, his patience and anger, his faithfulness in all of this, God exercises his power. And that's why it's so helpful that Paul gives us the evidence of the immeasurable greatness of God's power. How do we know that this immeasurable power, how do we know this immeasurable power deep in our hearts? We see that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. God's all-surpassing and immeasurable power is displayed in Jesus being raised from the dead. Yes, it's displayed in creation, which is where my mind is always taken to, but when Paul is going to describe this power, he points to Jesus being raised from the dead. There is no comparable power in all of history. From my embarrassing belief that being at the front of the line would somehow increase my recognition and my power, to Pilate's declaration of power to Jesus, there is nothing compared to the incomparable power of God. Caesar has nothing on him. Joe Biden, Donald Trump, any other person of influence are nothing compared to God's power because his power is immeasurable incomparable. It is all-surpassing. Power over death is the ultimate power because death is the last enemy. Listen to Paul's words to the church in Corinth when he writes this near the end of his letter. He says, then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. In the last days, all sin, all evil powers, and the death they bring will be defeated. This defeat will be brought to completion. And we can be confident that God has the power to accomplish this because in the resurrection of Jesus, the Father put this power on display for the world. He defeated the powers of sin and death. And this confidence in the power of God leads Paul to join the prophet Hosea in, in some ways, sort of taunting death. Death is swallowed up in victory, O death. Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? Paul says this not because death isn't painful. We have all 
at different levels experience the deep grief and deep pain of death. But Paul can speak like this because he knows that the power of death is no match for the immeasurable power of God. And now through the death and resurrection of Jesus, this same power brings you and me, God's people, from death to life. As he gives us eternal life and rescue from sin, but also in the little places day after day where he brings you out of death and into life. We go from children of wrath to children of God, heirs of eternal life with the triune God. That's what Paul had introduced at the beginning of his letter, and he will unpack in the following verses at the beginning of chapter 2. This immeasurable power reaches into death and brings out life. And this has been accomplished in our hearts and our bodies and our entire lives. Finally, at the end, these last two verses, we see the foundation of Paul's prayer. How can he, where does he rest this prayer? Where can we rest our prayers for each other? As Paul writes, Jesus, the one who has power over all, has not just done something for us. He is doing something in us. Paul says, and God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this power of Christ is not just toward you. It is working in you and through you. Of course, this doesn't mean that we are now some sort of mini-gods, and that doesn't mean that we can now use this power of Christ to go and make a name for ourselves. Rather, the power of Christ in us is the power by the Holy Spirit to put our sin to death, the power to love our neighbors as ourselves the power to forgive others as we have been forgiven by God, and the power to respond to persecution and aggression with generosity. That sort of life, a life of faith and love, is only possible because you and I have been united to Christ, because his power is working in and through us. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, He says, Here then is a glorious description of Christ and his people, creator and conquering Lord, head of the church, filled with the fullness of God, filling all things and ruling all things for the sake of his body, which is his fullness. The church is the community which Christ now indwells, filling it up with his presence, flooding it with his grace, and conforming it to his image until it is filled with his likeness. Brothers and sisters, this is what we must pray daily for each other. We must give thanks to the Lord for each other. We must give thanks to the Lord for the ways we are living by faith in Jesus and loving one another. And as you give thanks, pray for the Spirit to continue his work in you. For him to continue his work in you as individuals and as a church family here at Providence Presbyterian Church. Because united to Christ as our head, this power of God, this hope to which he has called you, and the riches of his glorious inheritance, this is a gift for you. Although the love, grace, and power of God is so inexhaustible that we could never fully plumb the depths of his character, by his spirit we are growing more and more in the knowledge of him. So we offer a prayer of praise 
that God is sovereignly and powerfully ruling over his creation through his son, Jesus Christ. And that this rule of Christ is for people, for his people. And that God, in some mysterious way, in some way that surpasses all of our understanding, is making all things new and is bringing about our salvation and our good. Friends, that is our hope. That is your hope as individuals. It is your only hope as individuals. It is your hope as a church here in York. It is your only hope as a church here in York. This is our inheritance, and God alone has the power to accomplish it. Let's pray. Lord God, you are powerful, powerful beyond any measure, all-surpassing, incomparable. But not only are you powerful, you are powerful and full of steadfast love, a God of compassion and goodness and graciousness and justice and mercy. And so now we do not need to be afraid of how you will use your power, but that you have used it to rescue us out of our sin and death and bring us into life. And we pray that that would be our one and only hope. It would be the thing that grounds us. It would be the thing that gives us confidence as we interact with our family, our friends, and our neighbors in our community. We thank you for your gracious, immeasurable power and that you have used that to promote your glory and to work in us so we can join in that promotion of proclaiming Jesus as the name that is above every name. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.